Okay. Holy God, we praise thy name. Lord of all, we bow before thee. All on earth thy scepter claim. All in heaven above adore thee. Infinite thy vast domain. Everlasting is thy reign. Hark the loud celestial hymn. Angel choirs above are raising. Cherubim and seraphim. In unceasing God, who taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending to them the light of your Holy Spirit, grant us by the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his holy comfort, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. It's great to see you all this morning. Um, I'm Father Lee Nelson. I know we have a lot of new people here today. Uh, I'm Father Lee Nelson. I'm the uh, planter of Christ Church. Um, you know, in, in purely uh, canonical terms, I'm the vicar, meaning that uh, the bishop has 
total ownership of me and I do whatever he wants me to do. No, that's actually, that's canonically what it means, but it doesn't actually mean that. <laughs> what it really means is that uh, I'm in charge of the congregation and I, uh, I take care of all the things that need to be done and um, I make sure that leadership is in place and all those kinds of things. Um, it also means that I have primary responsibility for teaching and uh, it is one of uh, my great passions to do that. Um, I uh, grew up Anglican. I'm one of the weird ones in this entire congregation. Uh, there are some. There are some. There's only two, two or three or four of us. Uh, so so it's, a, it's a very different thing. Uh, but what I want to say uh, this morning is that um, Christ Church is a place where a lot of people are finding a home because they're becoming enraptured and, uh, and, and excited about this idea and uh, that, uh, well, not, not just an idea. It's the truth that you can... Uh, live in many ways as ancient Christians did, um, and that you can uh, um, you can be a Christian who uh, loves what they loved and uh, who uh, breathes in the teaching that they breathed in, and uh, it's a very exciting thing to be able to do that. Um, in that vein, one of the things that we've been doing here for some time is we've been revitalizing the work of uh, catechesis. Uh, catechesis is that ancient work of the church in uh, teaching and instructing those who are coming to faith for the first time. Like that. Oh, good. Uh, it's from the Greek word. I don't know. Does anybody read Greek? Probably there are some of you in here. There are always a few, anyway. Uh, it's from the Greek katecheo, which means to sound in the ears, to make the ears ring, to instruct orally, to instruct, to inform. Um, this sounding in the ears is actually where we get this, uh, it's a word you've known before, echo, right? Um, this resounding. Uh, so the idea, and in fact the, the church fathers, who are those initial theologians of the church, uh, tell us that this is like um, uh, the teaching resounding in a hollow place. What happens when you speak into a hollow cave? It echoes back. Does it, does it have that teaching in it to start? No, but it resounds back. Um, so Cyril of Jerusalem, for instance, speaks about this. He says, you had, you had not the word. Uh, but you heard it, and it began to resound in you. Um, and, of course, Paul actually uses this word uh, in Galatians and in 1 Corinthians and in other places. Uh, this is a wonderful verse. Let the one who is taught share the word share all good things with the one who teaches. <laughs> um, now, he's referring, of course, to money there uh, or to just supporting teachers. But uh, nonetheless, it is to say that catechesis is a sharing in good things. Um, that's an important part. Um, he also says in 1 Corinthians, Nevertheless, in church I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to, and that instruction word is, is the same word, katecheo, to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Five words to instruct others. He'd rather do that than 10,000 words in a tongue. Because he knows the value of this work of instruction. The ancient church took instruction very, very, very seriously. Can I get the next slide? So seriously, in fact, that if you were a, a pagan living in those days and you uh, wanted to become a Christian, there was a one to three year process that you had to follow in order to do so, and at every step along the way there were examinations attached to every part. And the examinations went something like this. It was first, we want to talk to your Christian neighbor who has brought you here. Um, and questions were like, does he love his parents? Uh, is she steadfast in caring for the poor? Um, all of these questions were important because the church wanted to maintain, and I think it's really important, wanted to maintain a specific culture in the midst of this pagan world. Um, they were very intent on this. 
and it took a great deal of instruction. And uh, in fact, you would regularly, as a catechumen, this is what these those people being catechized were called catechumens. Uh, you would receive regular. Uh, uh, exorcisms, so the uh, people would pray for you to have demons cast out of you, uh, so that, and the idea was, the demons are removed so that the truth can be put in you. Um, this was a very holistic process. It, it was not only about learning what Christians believe, but also starting to do what Christians do. Um, to begin to act like they do, to pray like they do, to do business like they do. Aidan Kavanaugh, who was a um, uh, a particular scholar on this subject, he was once the dean of Yale Divinity School, uh, says this. He says that catechesis is conversion therapy. It embraces the whole of the church's policy on who a Christian is and how he gets to be that way. Um, so one of the things we're, we're excited about here is that in a time in which becoming a Christian is such a nebulous thing, would you agree with that? I mean, how does one do that today in most churches? How do you join a church today in North America? Do you want to know how easy it is in most churches? You sign a check with the church's name in the line, and you're now on the rolls forever. <laughs> um, sometimes there's like a two-weekend class. Sometimes there's like a three-session deal. Um, here at Christ Church, uh, catechesis is beginning now, and it will continue all the way through until the summer, and even through the summer. And if you'd like to become a member of Christ Church, that's one of the things that I insist on, is that you join the catechesis class. It's also that if you'd like to be baptized, um, if you want to uh, ultimately uh, be confirmed even, which is another thing altogether, uh, we require catechesis. If you want to be married at Christ Church, uh, and there's at least one of you here, I require catechesis, right? <laughs> because, because one of the things that makes for a successful marriage is that, uh, that you are pondering theologically the meaning of marriage within the greater context of the whole teaching of the church. Um, uh, as well, and I think this is really, really very key, um, catechesis is required for everyone in leadership. Um, so everyone who's in leadership has done a whole year of this. We've been doing this from the start, um, and it's been very fun to see. By the way, we are celebrating our, our first anniversary of our launch today, actually. It's today on the dot. Uh, it's a very exciting day. Uh, we launched last year, which meant that we went to worshiping every Sunday morning, uh, and we will do that until Jesus returns. Uh, so uh, this is an exciting Sunday. Um, just a bit more about this course. There are two texts that you need to bring every single Sunday we meet, and that is a Bible, uh, which hopefully you should have one, uh, and if you have it on your phone, that's fine, I don't care, I'm one of you. Uh, and also this, uh, this text is called To Be a Christian in the Anglican Catechism, um, and uh, it's, it is the text for, catech for catechesis, um, and here's some of the history and thought behind this text. Um, when uh, we formed the Anglican Church in North America uh, seven years ago, uh, the desire was to have a teaching document that expressed succinctly and easily and readily and, avail and, and in an available format um, all that we teach uh, to those who are coming into our church, those that we are uh, preparing for baptism, etc. Um, and I was actually, uh, when the bishops pu pushed this task uh, onto us, I was the uh, co-chair of the Catechesis Task Force for the entire province and I sat there thinking, we are not ready to do this. Please don't make us do this. But we did it anyway because they made us. Uh, and it's been a wonderful project and a wonderful uh, opportunity. Um, some absolutely stellar theologians were involved in this text. Uh, so does anyone know who J.I. Packer is? Okay, some of you know him personally. Uh, he was involved in this. 
Um, if you uh, uh, have uh, been aware, there, there are just a number of people who've been, who've been critical, critically involved in this text. And the purpose is, uh, in the time of the Reformation, uh, many, like uh, Martin Luther, uh, compared Christians of his day in Germany to uh, pigs uh, eating slop off the ground. <laughs> now, he, wasn't, he, he was characteristically colorful, I'll put it that way. Um, but what he was saying was that, that people just don't know what Christianity is all about in most places. Um, and I think that's still true, actually. That's still the case. Um, many people will say, here's the problem. The problem is we're not biblically literate. Um, well, you know what the truth is? The truth is about 54% of people read their Bible on a regular basis. They're reading the scriptures. Um, now, if you're not one of those people, become one of those people, by all means. Uh, many people will say, well, it's the culture. The culture's had such an influence on us. Uh, I'll tell you what I think the problem is. I think the problem is that Christians, by and large, are not taught sufficiently to think theologically. They're not taught to think theologically about their place in the world. They're not taught to think theologically about uh, dilemmas they face in the Christian life, ethical dilemmas, moral dilemmas, uh, relational dilemmas. They're not taught to think theologically about um, God's relation to the world. And they're also not taught to think theologically about um, how God continues to act in this world and continues to act with regard to you and to me. We don't think regularly about sin. We don't think regularly about redemption. Um, most Christians can say, yes, Jesus died for my sins. That's wonderful, very good. Uh, but there's so much more content to this. Um, classically speaking, the uh, church taught along three categories, and they were made up by the Apostles' Creed, which is the ancient baptismal creed that you would literally say as you were being baptized. And you had, in most cases, been taught this creed the week before you were baptized, and you were taught to memorize it. The other portion of the instruction was the Lord's Prayer. Remember that? In the Gospel of Luke, especially, the disciples say to Jesus, what? Lord, teach us to pray. And what does he, what does he teach them? Well, Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, which isn't the one you usually use, but it's, it's, it's this statement which is very important, which is that uh, a part of becoming a Christian is learning to pray. Um, and not simply learning to pray on your own, uh, surrounded by candles and doing whatever you want, but learning to pray according to a form, um, and finding that form to be very helpful. And so that'll be the second part of catechesis. The third part of catechesis is always instruction along the lines of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and it is an instruction in how to live out the Christian life um, in a way that uh, is both tied to what God has revealed, but also in a way that it actually works, right? Uh, I think we often get this idea of Christian ethics is so high above us that it's darn near impossible, and it feels overwhelming. Um, what instead we set out to teach is, is a, well, actually a practicable ethic. Um, we set out to teach people how to live as Christians on a daily basis, uh, and that will come last. So today we're going to begin, and by the way, there are 18 questions which form the introduction to the catechism, and I want to merely mention them, uh, because we're going to begin on page 33 today. Uh, but those are introductory material for those who are uh, uh, being evangelized. And um, if you're one of those people, I'd love to go through it with you, and I'd love to talk, to you, talk with you about it. But for right now, we're going to begin with the creeds, um, and uh, that's on page 33. Actually, I'm going to go back just a little bit. Let's go back to 31. What we do every time that we come to the catechism is 
Um, we, I will ask you the question, and then you will read in response the answer. Um, but I want to read this first portion of, of, of the Catechism to you, page 31. For Anglicans, as for all genuine Christians, authentic Christianity is apostolic Christianity. And what do we mean by apostolic Christianity? Take a stab at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's from the apostles, right? I mean, this, this is right there. It's, it, it comes from the apostles. Um, and we can actually... Uh, you know, there's surprising amounts of sources from the first and third, first and second centuries. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm, I love this because uh, Dr. Fish, who sits at the keyboard, will often teach a class to uh, Baylor students, which is reading the Apostolic Fathers in the original languages in Greek. They sit down and they read through the Apostolic Fathers. Now, some of you are like, that sounds awful. But for the six students that are in it, they love it. Uh, <laughs> and what they love about it is that you're reading from primary sources what ancient Christians did, how they lived, how they believed, what they, uh, what they were doing. And for Dr. Fish, he actually said this a couple weeks ago. He said, you know, for me, that was my entrance into this ancient way of being a Christian. It was how I understood all of this uh, to be that this is not something that weird Christians did so, so far back ago, but things that we continue to do. Um, apostolic Christianity rests on the historic eyewitness testimony of Jesus' followers, the apostles, to the facts of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, present heavenly reign, and promised future return. Before there was a New Testament, there were apostles proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the resurrection, proclaiming Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father, proclaiming uh, all of these things, the, the cold, hard facts about Jesus' life. Both Jesus and his apostles understood these facts to fulfill the Old Testament hopes of the kingdom or reign of God to which God's covenant with Israel was intended to lead and which the Christian church has received as a reality from Jesus and his apostles. So the understanding, and I think this is something that, that we often uh, miss, but for many people today, there's this understanding that I can pick up a Bible and I can learn all that I need to know about being a Christian. In a sense, that's actually true. But in another sense, it's not. Because the, the faith is meant to be passed on in a living way, in a living body, the church. Um, and this is, uh, the, the church is called, in fact, in Scripture, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Um, we must begin to say this, uh, especially as Anglicans, that we affirm, yes, uh, the, the Bible to be God's word written. But we also affirm that the apostolic faith is passed down from generation to generation to generation in the church. Um, so, with that, I want to continue with, uh, verse, with uh, the 19th question um, on page 33. What is a creed? A creed is a statement of faith. The word creed comes from the Latin credo, which means, I believe. So if you look up some of these ancient creeds, like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, they all begin with this Latin word, credo. Uh, the, the Nicene Creed begins, credo in, in, in unum Deo, I, I believe in one God. Um, St. Augustine once wrote, uh, credo ut intelligum, which means, I believe that I may understand. Um, today we live in a world in which I must understand first before I believe. How's that working out for you? It's, a, it's, it's insane, right? It doesn't work. Because, you, because here's the problem. 
some of your students at Baylor, go to the Baylor Library and look around the stacks. Is there any chance, except if you're Jonathan Tomes, to read all of those books in your lifetime? No. Is there any way that you can, that you can perceive all knowledge by yourself? No. So what do you have to do? There's a requirement here. It's, it's rather daunting. There are two things. One is, I have, to, I have to believe first. Um, when you walk into class on Monday morning, you have to believe that your professor knows what he or she is talking about, right? Uh, when you uh, were little, you believed everything your parents said. And often parents struggle with this because I'll often kid with my kids and I'll, I'll say things that aren't true just to rib them. And they'll, they'll believe it because they trust me, right? Um, they don't understand what I'm saying, but they, they want to know. Um, St. Anselm once said, Fides quarens intellectum, meaning faith seeks understanding. Um, if you're in the Honors College of Baylor, you'll see that all over the place. If you're a student at Live Oak, you see it all over the place. Why? Because it's the basis of an education. It is the basis of good education, is to say, I put my trust in another to teach me. So Christians have understood this, that to be a person of faith uh, is to put your mind in the hands of someone else. First and foremost, to put your mind in the hands of God and ask him, teach me, please, uh, to say, I believe, help, me to un help my unbelief. That word creed comes from the Latin credo, which means I believe, and uh, in the creeds we state affirmatively the, uh, those things of the faith. What is the purpose of the creeds? The purpose of the creed is to declare and safeguard God's truth about himself, ourselves, and creation, as God has revealed it in Holy Scripture. The creed, listen to this, declare and safeguard. So there are two tasks. What's the first task? To declare. What does it mean to declare something? means you're stating something to be true, right? <laughs> uh, we're not fans of declaratory statements these days. We like to more ask questions a lot, and even we'll turn declaratory sentences into uh, interrogative sentences by just simply turning up the tone at the end. Uh, but believe it or not, there actually are such a thing as declaratory sentences, and you should use them more often. <laughs> uh, but this is a great thing uh, that the creeds do. They don't put question marks all over the place. They declare. They also safeguard... Now, does God's truth need to be uh, defended? Okay, that was a trick question. Yes, it does. <laughs> it needs to be defended because, um, because, well, God has an enemy, does he not? And what does the enemy do? Well, in Scripture, we, we read, sows seeds of confusion. Um, he, uh, he lies about God, even though he knows him, right? That's part of the, that's kind of the, the interesting bit about it. Um, so the truth must be, must be safeguarded. Um, and the church has this task to safeguard that truth about himself, ourselves, and creation. Scripture not only relates to us truth about God, but also relates to us truth about who we are. In fact, that's what the first three chapters of the entire Bible are doing. What are they telling us? How we were made good, yes? How all creation, in fact, was made good. And how we, what? We sinned, we fell, and things went awry. 
Um, we learn about God's intent in creation. We also learn about who we are in, in that light. Um, we learn, for instance, that we are made in the image and likeness of God. We learn uh, that we are, um, we are made to, uh, to uh, exercise mastery and glory in creation with God. How well does that go? Not terribly well. Uh, but it is still what is held out for us. Um, we also learn about creation. Um, now, does this mean, and I, I want to ask this in, with a bit of caution because I know we could open up a huge can of worms, does this mean that we learn uh, science about creation? Well, maybe a little bit. But the important thing is the theological truth about creation. And this is something which modern Christians are not equipped uh, terribly well to, to approach, is to think theologically about creation. I would say this just as, a, as a, an aside. Um, the beginning chapters of Genesis are a theological treatise about creation. This is very important. If we miss this uh, for trying to find something other than what that is, then we'll miss it entirely. Um, it is to say that, that creation has a theological content, which is extremely important, which often gets missed. Um, Anyway, I'll say more about that as we go on. Um, and not only that truth as we want to believe it, but that truth as it is revealed in Scripture. Um, the understanding of Scripture is that God is uh, undertaking and continually undertaking this work of self-revelation. Um, some of you know me better than others. Would you agree with that? Yes, okay. I've had lunch with some of you. I've had dinner with some of you in my house. You know my kids. Uh, some of you I've only met. I only know your name. But over time, what will I do? What do I hope to do? Well, I hope to reveal myself to you. I hope to, over time, reveal who I am. Um, this is what happens in the biblical record. Um, this is that God, who constantly desires to reveal himself, reveals himself over and over and over again uh, to chosen people. And this gets recorded in Scripture. Um, that's what we say about not only the creeds, but about Scripture. That this, this contains God's revelation of himself. Um, what does belief in the creeds signify? Belief in the creeds signifies acceptance of God's revealed truth and the intention to live by it. Note we said before that uh, this, these St. Augustine and St. Anselm uh, have, have graciously told us that uh, understanding is not required in order to believe. Thank goodness, right? Um, because, let me just ask this, can you understand God? You can try, right? You can try. Uh, and you might make some progress, actually. Uh, and I hope you do. But belief comes first. Faith comes first. And belief in the creeds signifies acceptance of that revealed truth, that revealed truth which is marked in Scripture and our intention to live by it. Um, does this mean that I must uh, agree fully with every line of the creed in order to believe it? That I must understand it? Well, in a sense, yes. But not in the sense that you are an expert. Um, because, in truth, none of us are experts in the creed. I can think of maybe three people I've known who are experts in the creed and their content. Uh, no, it, it means instead that we, that we say, in an act of what is really and truly extreme humility, we say, I don't understand, uh, but I want to believe, and I do believe. Okay. Now, 
I say this understanding that for some of you, uh, creeds are entirely new to you, uh, so let's, let's break that down just a little bit. Um, the creeds which, uh, which we hold, and let me, let's ask this question first. Which creeds does the church acknowledge? The church acknowledges the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. Um, these creeds come about as a part of a, of a living tradition, um, starting in really the first century and on through to the second and third and fourth centuries. The Apostles' Creed uh, exists as what we call uh, a baptismal creed. In other words, it's taught to uh, those who are being baptized as a rule of faith. Um, St. Ambrose refers to this in the fourth century as to the Apostles' Creed as an ever-present guard. It is to be memorized and it is to be uh, remembered so that when you run up against what is contrary to the creed, what do you say? This is not the faith that I was taught. It is also spoken of as a rule of faith. In Latin, that was the regula fide, uh, meaning that, um, and rule, uh, our, our, our understanding of rule doesn't really quite match this. By rule, it means um, um, plumb line, better, better, better spoken that way. What is a plumb line? So you take a string and you put a weight on the bottom, and usually they have points at the end. I should bring this for like a, a, a show and tell. Uh, but you can buy them at Home Depot. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you hang it, and it shows you what down is. What do you know if you also know what down is? You know what up is, too. And knowing up and down is incredibly important. Do you ever wonder how they get uh, those? Have you seen those apartments they're building at 12th and Spate? They're incredible. They're all made out of wood. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, the four stories all out of wood. I mean, I know people have done that before, and it's probably fine. But I wonder, how do they keep them straight? Well, there's your answer, right? They use these plumb lines. Um, it is so important that we understand this, that Christian orthodoxy has to have a plumb line. It always has to have something against which it is measured. Otherwise, what happens? We wind up crooked, we wind up off kilter, and then, has anybody ever lived in a crooked house? I do right now. I'm very thankful that the, that the house of faith is not crooked. Uh, but my house is crooked, okay? And, and it is maddening. Have you ever tried to hang a picture in a crooked house? Or hang cabinets in a crooked house? It's so frustrating because you say, this should be aligned and parallel, and it's not, it makes me nuts. And you notice it. Now, sometimes you get used to it, is the other thing. Like, I used to walk into the house and think, this house is so crooked, it's driving me crazy. But now my mind is sort of adjusted to it. Should it be adjusted to it? No! <laughs> but, but there it is. So there's, there's a need to have, and I think this is why the ancient church uh, saw such need to lay down these teachings in the form of a creed, was to say, Measure constantly uh, what you hear, what you, what you perceive against this creed. Um, so that's, a, that's one of the first ways in which it was given. The other part in which it was given was it was given as, uh, as a deposit. Um, the creeds were offered, uh, especially the Apostles' Creed, as, as, and it was often called this, the deposit. Why? Because it is given to you, right? As a trust, okay? So think about this. When we go to the bank and we make a deposit, what are we doing? It's not like Gringotts. They don't have a vault with all your like coins thing, you know, kind of piling up in a corner somewhere. What is it? You say, I trust you that when I come back, I'll get what I gave you. 
go do, and you can, listen, the banks do lots of things with that money, right? They loan it out to people so they can buy cars. They let people loan it so they can, they loan it to people so they can buy houses, so they can do home improvement projects, right? That's your money. Um, but I don't know if you've, you've probably seen, uh, well, uh, it's a wonderful life, right? And they depict the run on the banks, and the banker's trying to describe where everybody's money is. He says, it's in your house. <laughs> and, and this is why you can't have your deposit. The deposit is spoken of in this way. It's given to the Christian as a trust. And then what? So that you can pass it on to others in that sacred trust. Also so that you can, uh, you can hold it as that sacred trust. Anselm, Anselm speaks of the Apostles' Creed, and this is somewhat, um, um, well, it's, it's an interesting idea, but it never really happened this way. He sort of thinks that all the, uh, each one of the 12 apostles uh, contributed a line of the creed. Now, did that happen? No, but it's a great story, right? <laughs> uh, it's a great story. And the reason, it, the reason it's a great story is that he builds this whole sermon based on it. And he says, think about it. Um, you know, you form a company with, with 11 other people, and you all put in $1,000. Are you responsible for just your one-twelfth of the corporation? No. Okay, good. There's some business majors in here, or some people that just get this. Um, <clears throat> no, you're responsible to the whole. If, if you... Uh, if you spend it poorly and all of it gets lost, well, then that's on you. Um, So he says, everybody contributes a portion and they are also responsible for the whole. Well, that's the way it is with the creed. You receive it and you're responsible for it. It's a trust. In addition to the Apostles' Creed, uh, which, by the way, as you were baptized, uh, you would be put under the water and and it would be, do you believe in God the Father? I believe in God the Father, (laughs) Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Okay, one down under the water. Do you believe in God the Son? I believe in God the Son. And you'd be done three times. Triple immersion, right? Um, And the reason for this was that you were being not only baptized into uh, the person of Jesus Christ, but you were also being baptized into the faith of the church. Um, And you were receiving that as a gift. Um, Very important. The Nicene Creed was first developed at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 and was finished at the Council of Constantinople in 381. Um, there's wonderful books you can pick up about all that. Uh, but these creeds were meant to safeguard the church's historic and apostolic teaching against falsehoods being sown uh, in various parts of the church, namely things like this. Uh, well, you got Arius saying things like, there once was a time when Christ was not. And that's kind of the old way we sing it. Uh, is that true? No, we believe that Jesus Christ is co-eternal with the Father. Um, and that is stated in the creed. We believe that he is of the same substance as the Father. Um, all of that is stated in the Nicene Creed. And then finally we have the, the Athanasian Creed, uh, which originates in probably 6th century Spain, uh, although some people will say it, it, it's attributed to St. Athanasius, but it's not. Uh, that's just all this, it's, just, uh, it's because the faith that he proclaimed is very well summed up in this Athanasian Creed, which um, we will we will say it occasionally here at Christ Church. Usually on Trinity Sunday, we'll all stand up and say the Athanasian Creed. It takes a while. But uh, it's actually contained in the back of the catechism. So if you want to look, at, look that up, it's there. Um, it really does express very firmly not only the church's teaching on the Trinity, but also the church's teaching on the person of Christ. Okay, let's move on. Why do you acknowledge these creeds? I acknowledge these creeds with the church because they are grounded in Holy Scripture and our faithful expressions of its teaching. Um, scripture has the... It's an interesting... I mean, the, the history of uh, 
Christian interaction with Scripture is very interesting um, because, think about this, for the first three centuries, did anyone really have a complete copy of the New Testament? No, and in fact, they probably didn't have a complete copy of the New Testament for many centuries beyond that. Um, the, the texts of the New Testament were kept in cabinets in the church where they would pull out the individual texts and read those. We don't have original autographs in the New Testament. Okay? Now, I know a lot of church statements that speak about that, but we don't have them. You know why we don't have them? Because all we have are little interesting fragments and pieces that have been stitched together over time um, that, can, that, that have that text. And, of course, there are even some people in this very room who work with those texts, who look at those texts. Um, and it's a, very important, it's a very important task. But what makes up the, uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament is a received text, a text that, uh, that uh, most people, I think most, agree upon. Um, so that's, that's an important thing. The issue, though, is that um, for many, many centuries, nobody had a, most people didn't have a complete copy of the New Testament. It might be in your church. Um, but what you could have and what you could easily memorize was a creed. So it makes sense to have that. It makes sense to work through that. Um, it also is very important to understand that even when uh, Bibles could be printed, um, the ability of most people to read them was quite, was, was quite low. Um, and so we've only now in the last uh, really 200 years seen widespread literacy and with that widespread biblical literacy. Which of course people will say, well that's on the back burner, it's not really happening. But the truth of the matter is that, um, and I'll say this very strongly um, with others, the best way to approach scripture is with creedal content in the back of your mind. Constantly. Constantly checking. Constantly in, in the mind, this creedal faith as you read the scriptures. Okay. Um, it's a very, very important thing. And a lot of people actually go wrong in reading scripture because they're not thinking creedally about their relation to it. Okay. And that is to say, clearly as well, that the creeds have been understood and have always been understood to be faithful expressions of biblical teaching. Um, and I think that's got to be said very clearly. Okay. Why should you know these creeds? I should know these creeds because they state the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. Um, and, of course, that, that is a rather self-evident answer. Uh, it says that the essential beliefs of being a Christian are contained in those creeds. Um, and uh, and I, I do want to say, say just a bit about that. Um, the creeds never pretended to... Uh, to state all things emphatically, right? They're meant to be short. They're meant to be memorized. They're meant to be understood quite easily and readily. Um, and so that, that actually has happened through the centuries. Um, such that uh, in many places, people say the creed regularly two or three times a day. Um, if you're an Anglican and you pray the daily office, which a lot of us do, you're going to say the Apostles' Creed twice a day. Um, and and the great thing about that is, guess what? You start to memorize it um, very quickly, actually. You get to the point where it's like, yeah, I know the creed. I know it's like the back of my hand. I know all of it. Um, coming on Sundays, you receive and you regularly read the Nicene Creed to the point where you memorize it. Um, and that's a great, great thing. Um, so I want to put that in front of you. Okay, let's all stand, and we'll do this last question. And then we'll all answer any questions you might have. What is the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, 
I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Okay, please be seated. Okay, we'll try to do that more often, read the entire creed out on these Sunday mornings. Uh, But are there any questions after this morning's work? No questions. Oh, there's, okay, any, Don. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And the sun, yes. Okay. The the phrase in question is called uh in 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 history the filioque. It re- it refers to this addition of the line and the sun to the to the Nicene Creed in about the 6th and 7th centuries um, in the western church but never in the east. So one of the things that happens is that Western councils comprised of Western bishops added in this, uh, this understanding that the Holy Spirit proceeds not only from the Father, but also from the Son. Um, that is reflective of Western theology. Okay? We'll, we'll just say that clearly, that Western theology will, will usually and normally teach a doctrine which is called double procession, that the, that the, the Spirit... The Spirit is uh, proceeds, and this is kind of going to be heady for some of you, so don't worry about it. Uh, but but it's that it proceeds from the Father and the Son. Okay. In Anglicanism, uh, the canonical reception of the filioque has usually been that yeah, we accept it, um, and the filioque is stated in the prayer books and other places. But in about um, the uh, the late 1800s, there began to be dialogues between the Orthodox and uh, and Anglicanism. And one of the things that became clear was that uh, the Eastern Orthodox and Anglicans share uh, a great deal of the same kind of things, right? One of them is that uh, we believe that the whole church is not just the Roman Catholic Church, okay? Uh, which claims to be the whole church. And we also will say very strongly that they don't have the right to define for all Christians what will be believed, especially in the creeds. So in some of the Lambeth conferences, that's when uh, the bishops of Anglicanism get together and they talk and have tea and make pronouncements, uh, which they may never do again. Uh, that would be interesting. Uh, is they've said in order to lower the opposition and lower the the amount of things we have to get through in order to have union with the Orthodox on essentials, we will no longer say the uh, filioque and worship. Now, in some places that's happened, in other places it hasn't. Relations, however, between the Anglican Church in North America and the Orthodox have actually been incredibly strong. Just last week, uh, our Archbishop and, and our Ecumenical Task Force met with bishops of the Orthodox Church in America. Um, they've also been invited to meet with the, with the Patriarch of Moscow and others. Um, because there's this understanding that um, we are in the same boat, we, uh, we hold the same faith, um, and, uh, and we're close, really close. Uh, to having real union. Um, and to, to give you an idea of just how close that union has been at times, um, when I was first ordained, the priest I served under, actually when he was first ordained, 
he was regularly invited when the Greek Orthodox priest was out of town to go celebrate divine liturgy for that Greek Orthodox parish because they, their bishop had said, I don't have a problem with that, he's a priest. It's fine. We hold the same faith. Now, of course, that's broken down at certain points, uh, but in the, in the ACNA, uh, tr- in the liturgies that we use on Sundays, uh, that has actually been, uh, at times, put in brackets, this and the sun, and at times it's not been in brackets. Um, we've chosen here to not include it in the Sunday liturgy, um, mainly because, um, well, several reasons. I'm rather high on Anglican Orthodox relations, have been for a long time. Uh, and uh, I think there's a great deal of good to come from it. Um, I think that uh, Christians being united, especially Catholic Christians being united, is a good thing, and we ought to, we ought to do as much of it as we can. Um, keep in mind that the Orthodox are the second largest body of Christians in the world, um, and uh, we, share a lot of the, we share a lot of things in common. So I, I'd say that that's the first reason. The other reason is that it's a theological statement about, um, about how doctrines must be stated uh, ecumenically. Um, the ecumenical councils speak with one voice because they represent the entire church, or, or most of it. And uh, to change the Nicene Creed unilaterally by one portion of the church geographically is, is, the, is the very definition of not being ecumenical and not being Catholic. So, so that, that sticks in the mind. And, and it's, by the way, some people may say, you're arguing over things that are 1,500 years old. Well, <laughs> when we argue over what Scripture says, we're arguing over things that are 2,000 plus years old. So, so keep that in mind. It's, it's to say that these are rather serious things. Um, it's a serious thing to change the creed. Um, because if they do as we, as, we, as we expect them to, which is to state emphatically uh, and to declare and safeguard God's truth and God's revealed truth, then that's, then that's an issue. Of course, I say that as one who upholds the, the Athanasian Creed as a received creed when the Orthodox don't. Uh, but they're okay with that, right? They're supposed to be like, oh, well, yeah, we don't, we're, not, we're not opposed to that. So there's, there's that as well. Rob? Okay. It's, it's not really. But... different entities and things like that, yeah. To, wi- to which I would say that um, from the Orthodox perspective, the creed that they're going to continually turn to is the Nicene Creed, and the creed that plays a front and center role in their thought is the Nicene Creed. Um, and so the d- d- differences on the Nicene Creed are going to be crimes, right? Um, they, do, they do not contest at all the ability of a local church uh, and in this case, they think of Anglicanism as a local church, surprisingly enough, to have a creed that they receive and acknowledge uh, that states adequately their, their position on things. They don't contest that at all. Um, and in fact, there are, if you, you can read some of the, some of the dialogue um, papers on this, and they're quite fascinating, uh, that, that just doesn't rise to the floor. It's just not an issue. Right. I, that would be an, that'd be a great example, actually. Right. So, like, you know, the East will teach about divine energia and this kind of idea of, like, all these kind of emanations from God that 
it's really hard to understand, but, but basically like divine light proceeds out from God and you can perceive it and know and you're actually knowing God and all this. Okay, well, the West has resisted that because it's, 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 it's really, uh, it cuts against Western metaphysics, it cuts against all sorts of things, uh, but it's, it's an issue, right? Um, and a lot of people would say, it's just heresy. Let's call it what it is. It's just heresy. I, I don't, I don't want to step out on that limb and say that um, about a whole lot of things. So there's kind of that, there's a graciousness that's required, and I think that's, that's important. Does that make sense? It's tough, right? But I think when it comes to the role of the Nicene Creed, uh, the Nicene Creed is always going to be, you know, I, I think for the Orthodox, until we can agree on a common text for the Nicene Creed, we can agree on nothing. <laughs> Does that make sense? So, <laughs> so that's a really important part of it. That's why the, this, this little line. Of course, keep in mind, I want to say this really, really clearly. In the fourth century, Battles and wars and church division were fought and people died over an eye in the middle of the 19th century. And finally, and, and thanks be to God, they removed it because it was heresy. Right? Uh, what I'm talking about is in the word homoousios, which means of one substance, they, some of the Arians had inserted an eye in the middle of that word to make it mean now not of same substance but of similar substance. Well, that's not what we mean. Um, and the Arians were fine with it because it expressed adequately what they wanted without changing so much. Uh, but people fought for that. Just that one little eye. Um, and thank God they did. Because it's, it matters. Right? It, it deeply matters. Okay. And I'll say more as we get into Christology. Because <laughs> that'll be fun. Okay. Well, we're going to begin shortly. Uh, good to have you with us. Um, just, to, just to say a few things to those of you who may be new. Um, if it is your first time worshiping in an Anglican congregation, do not be dismayed. Uh, there are lots of strange things that we do that you might find strange and weird, and, uh, and please don't worry about it. Uh, if, you, uh, if you find yourself thinking, I, I feel really strange about that, well, you don't have to do anything. Uh, that's one of the best things about it. You don't have to do anything. You can be here and observe and watch, and, and uh, that's that. Uh, but uh, I hope you'll find it, as many have, just a wonderfully uh, uh, helpful uh, experience of worship. So put that in front of you. Thank you.